Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tape. I'm Mood Sadie, and on today's show, I talk to Sarah Cavedo. Sarah Cavedo is, um, how do I put this, a twice-in-a-row Third Coast award-winning producer. And he got his start at Youth Radio when he was like 15, and he's worked at a bunch of other places like Audible and Latino USA, and most recently he was at the New York Times for nine months, and then he left, and that's kind of where we start the interview. But besides that, we talk about his award-winning work, the Cavados, and the return, like really moving, emotionally devastating at times, audio documentaries. You know, Sarah's really good at making personal work, so we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of, of what it takes to make personal work. Yeah, so if you want to learn more about the artist, that is Sarah Cavado. I recommend you stick around. Okay, here's me talking to Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Tape. Hi, Mooch. Well, I want to talk to you about so many things, like your award-winning work. But since this is recent news, I thought I'd start with, um, so you left the Daily. I'm curious why. Um... You know, it's 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 a lot to explain, um, but I'll just like simply say that I didn't feel like I was going to have the chance to do the kind of work that I wanted to do in the way that I wanted to do it. And um, so I got a job offer at Vice and I I decided to take it because I've, I've been really passionate about doing and wanted really since I began my radio career, uh, wanted to do international reporting and really focus on on those stories and and. I want that to be the main focus of my job um, and and let my artistic sort of work be my own. Um, and so that was sort of what went into the decision-making process for that. And then on top of that, I, I just wanted to get out of New York a little bit and get a change of scenery and, and try something new. Congratulations on landing a job at Vice. That, that seems very fitting. I'll just ask one follow-up, and this is kind of for my sake and for people who listen to the show trying to understand of like how to make these decisions and how to make these decisions wisely of like the times is such an institution that anyone would want to work for yet at the same time it doesn't necessarily mean it's like a good fit for anyone totally it is hard i mean it's hard to know at any job in general whether you're going to be happy or not once you've taken the job because of course everything looks great when you're applying um because all they're telling you is the benefits and how great it's going to be and their vision and and all of that stuff the thing that I've started to think of, the like the sort of like piece of advice that I would give is think beyond your sort of career and think about your job because the your career is the thing that spans years, but your job is the thing that you have to wake up every morning and do. And so thinking through sort of what do I want to wake up and do every single day <laughs> and, 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 and what are the things that I'm willing to sacrifice or, or give up? Um, you know, so say you're someone who's who's incredibly artistic and wants to make artistic pieces and and. Maybe you don't have that outlet at work, but you really enjoy the thing that you do there anyway, and you know that you'll have enough energy to do it, you know, in your free time. Those are the sort of negotiations that I feel like I that I try to put myself through. But it's it's hard because also <laughs> I want to make money and I want to take care of myself and I want to pay off my student loans. And so personally, I don't think any one job is going to satisfy every need or is going to utilize every part of your talent. And I don't think that's actually a bad thing. I think in some ways you can make the decision to sort of 
make room for, right? Make room for the things that you want to do or apply them in the workplace. And I think what I've realized is that there are certain parts of my work and the work that I like doing that I would love to bring to a job, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the job. And in some ways, I prefer having a little bit more of that creative energy for myself because I'm a little selfish and and I want to make things that are mine. You know, I think with The Daily, my job was to cut the podcast for radio that was my main responsibility for for the 10 months, um, almost 11 months that I was at the Daily. And and in my head, I sort of told myself like, oh, this is going to be really good for my creative work. And it'll be really nice to have some space to myself where it's just I'm doing this other kind of busy job and then get to do stuff on the side. And then I realized as the months went on, it's like, oh, this is not satisfying for me. Like, I don't wake up every morning excited to do the thing that I'm going to do and and you know, and I know that's that in itself is a privilege, but I also feel like if you're waking up every morning dreading at this point opening your computer to start work, um, then maybe the job isn't isn't what you want it to be. And so I thought really carefully about that, and 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 that's sort of how I landed on on this other job. You know, I'm 27. I'm I'm quite young, and I feel like I still have so much room to explore and change and figure out what I like and dislike. I don't have this sort of pressure on myself to join a shop and then stay there forever. Um, I don't like I don't sort of romanticize being like the guy that's been there for 15 years. Like I want to be the guy that's there and he's happy and he's doing the work that he wants to do because um, otherwise I'm kind of unpleasant to be around, I think. So I thought of one follow up when, when you were talking, which is, you know, with every experience, we learn something new. We learn to ask better questions. Was there one question that you that you when you were talking to Vice that you asked the hiring manager of Vice that you knew to ask now that you hadn't thought of asking before because of this new experience? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I asked how many people of color are in leadership was the question that I asked in this, which I've never done before. And it's not because that stuff doesn't occur to me. You know, I worked at Latino USA before I worked here. So it was sort of like, well, okay, <laughs> the the leadership, like I can, you know, you can go on their website and it's like 12 people. So it's pretty obvious there are people of color in leadership. Um, but I hadn't thought to ask that question, I guess, in part because I hadn't I hadn't thought through how, how important that is for me, even just sort of on an emotional level to see to see people of color in leadership positions and and to have them help sort of making editorial decisions you know and 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 I recognize too that like it is still a rarity in a lot of shops but even if that's the case I think it also makes clear my expectation going in right so like even if your answer is well we don't have anyone yet it's sort of like all right well this person is going to hold us to that obviously you know and if we hire this person they'll probably continue to ask that question um and so it felt important to ask the question, get the answer, but also to show that I'm, I'm the kind of employee who will who will ask that question and who will who will you know who will ask for some accountability around that sort of thing, and the transparency with which someone answers that question tells you a lot about sort of where their goals are and whether they've even sort of thought it through. Um, and I and I felt like from the answer that I got advice that that they were thinking it through and that it was important to them. And and that to me was a really good signal of, okay, I'd like to I'd like to work for these people. I want to talk about your piece, the Kveros, which is about a personal, a, a very personal family story. How would you summarize it? You know, it's a story of basically of my upbringing. It's a story of of growing up 
only knowing two blood members of my family, so my my mother and my my brother, and sort of our insular world, and and that insular world sort of being broken open by this discovery that um, my grandmother might still be alive in in San Francisco. Um, it's much more complicated and much more of a journey than that summary is making it sound. But that's the way I would describe it, just sort of generally. You know, this is a story that's been with you from the moment you were born. Did you always know that you're going to tell the story? I think I did. I think I always knew that I had this story inside of me that I felt like other people wouldn't understand. Um, and I like avoided like I remember I would dread when people would ask me about my family because it wasn't not because I was ashamed, but just because I felt like, oh, now I have to explain all this stuff <laughs> and be like, well, my mom was born in San Francisco, but she left when she was younger and, and my father left before I was born. And like, you know, it's just like and and those sort of it's a sort of story that I think people like unconsciously they they pity you a little bit, right? Yeah. Like they're like, "Oh, that's so sad. Like you you, you know, you never met your family. Like, oh, that's so sad your mom left home. Oh, that's so sad your your dad left before you were born." And it's like, I've had my whole life to work through this stuff. So it's not very sad to me. It's just annoying to have to explain it. <laughs> Which is like the sort of helpful thing about having a podcast because now whenever people ask me about my family, I'm like, I made a podcast about it. You can go and listen to it if you want to. You know, like it's like I don't feel that sort of need to explain myself in the same way, which is which is just like a fringe benefit of of making personal work, I guess, is being like, there's a podcast about it. But, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's it is it's a story that's been inside of me for a long time. And, and I don't think I was ever sure how I would share it. But I knew that in order to fully tell it, I would need to gather material. And and so when my mom showed up to pick me up and talk to me about, you know, finding this woman she thought she was was her mom, I knew that I needed to bring my recorder with me. And and I had that I had that tape for I must have been, I think I was like eighteen or nineteen when I recorded that and I made this piece when I was like twenty five. So I had that that tape for a pretty long time. Um and I just was kind of waiting for the right place and the right time to to tell it. One of your earlier pieces was titled Halfway Out, and it was a story about how you had a coming out party when you were nine years old, but your dad's side of the family didn't know. So you've you've dealt with difficult matters and difficult subjects regarding your family. You're not a stranger to that. What I'm trying to get at is that moment when you basically had to pitch this story of yours to the your coworkers at Latino USA. Like what's that moment like to like have to turn to your coworker and tell them, here's my family history? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone sort of assumes that we have a family. You don't look at someone and think like, oh, that person's probably adopted or like, oh, that person probably has like a strained family relationship, right? And and they don't talk to anyone in their family anymore. We assume that everyone has somewhat healthy family lives. And so it feels almost sort of Yeah not inane, but sort of feels like unnecessary to sort of point that stuff out or to come, yeah, to come out as having a strained family relationship. It was funny. It, it was sort of a soft pitch What I, is what I remember. Uh, like I, I went with my coworker, Antonia, like I remember exactly the day we went out to go and get sandwiches at the bodega near Latino USA. And it was super hot outside. And, and I told her like, you know, I've had this tape for a really long time of of my mom revealing to me that she had found this woman who she thought was her mom. And, and and I told her, but it's complicated because I feel weird. Like, I've never known how to tell the story in part because we got that information and then we did nothing with it. And so it sort of feels like a non-starter for a story. And I was like, but I am really curious about who she is and where she's at. And so I'd revealed that I'd had that tape. And then and that was also around the time that I'd gotten the death certificate um, from my grandmother. That had been weighing on me 
Right. But again, similarly, I sort of felt like, how do you even talk about this stuff? And then also, is this even is this a story? Because part of the story is that we got this crazy, important information about this really, really important person to my mom and we ignored it. And I was like that, like, I can't imagine as a listener listening to a story and thinking like, oh, that makes sense, (laughs) you know, and she sort of helped convince me that it was worthwhile to to do that. And I'm very thankful for that because it is, I mean, the, the ignoring of that information or rather like the putting to the side of that information tells you everything that you need to know about my mother's relationship to that family history and my relationship to that family history. And so at that point I was producing, you know, two way interviews and um, little short segments. And it was sort of a side project that I was doing essentially. Like it was like, oh yeah, you can work on that. And, and, but in the meantime, you have to produce all this other stuff. And immediately, like I think maybe even a week after I'd begun that research is when I got a hold of my uncle uh, Milton for the first time. And that sort of blew the whole thing open. And, and once they knew that information, they were like, oh yeah, of course you can, you know, bring your mom and your uncle together. Um, so it took a lot of convincing while I was doing that production to sort of get it to, to the place that it ended up. The story is like spanning <laughs> the length of your life. It even started way before you were born. And it, you kind of whittle it down to a 40-minute radio story. And how did you figure out like what moments you wanted to zoom in on? I'm really um, like a scattershot producer at the beginning. <laughs> like I really like I was just like, oh, we'll include this scene and this scene. And the way that I work is like I often I like overproduce everything is like an hour and a half long and then it's about just like whittling it down I think for me I want like real life like I want to capture real life as it's happening so I felt like the most important stuff are scenes the most important scenes in the story are the ones where things are happening in real time where I'm discovering things in real time Um, like the stories sort of about my grandmother in the forest or um, you know describing sort of my childhood that was stuff that I was like oh this could stay or leave you know like I, I'll find a way to sort of talk about that stuff but the things that I thought were necessary were sort of these moments where I'm like getting a phone call from my uncle for the first time or um, you know having a tough conversation with my mom over the phone or you know like that's the stuff that I felt like this piece will only have legs for me if it feels like you're really moving through real life in the tape and and I didn't want to make some sort of like didactic thing where I'm sort of my mom's describing everything in the past tense and I'm describing everything in the past tense and all the tape is people describing things in the past tense like I need part of it to be present tense in order for it to feel real how come I just feel very averse to people describing things in the past I I guess it's I'm not like a cinephile at all like don't you know like I don't want to give the wrong impression but like in a movie nobody says like and then he revealed to me a deep dark secret right it's like no you discover the deep dark secret as the main character is learning it you know and i just feel like there's something so much more um engaging for me as a listener to feel sort of like i'm discovering at the same time as the person who's who's doing the reporting than feeling like oh you're just like you're just kind of describing the the process of discovery i just need things to feel like they did in real life i don't want to recreate things i want them to just be in the piece, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And this might be obvious, but why did you want to start at the wedding? The original scene was the story in the car where my mom is revealing this, you know, that she's found this woman she thinks is her mom in San Francisco. Um, And I was really wedded to that idea of that being the first scene, I think in part because that was the first piece of tape that I had gathered. You know, and then I went through the, the process of making it 
And I sort of got to the end and that feeling of of sort of togetherness and loneliness, I wanted that to be there from the beginning, right? Which you don't get from a scene of someone revealing tape. You get that from, you know, somewhere else. And so I thought, you know, what is the moment in this reporting and producing where I felt that feeling? And I remember the wedding was like standing in the line waiting to walk the bride down the aisle. That was the moment that I felt that most clearly was this feeling of like, oh, wow, I'm like, I'm a part of these people, but I'm still sort of alone. Like I'm still like, even after this whole entire journey, I'm still kind of in the same place that I started. Um, and so I wanted to to get that feeling from the get-go. And then also, you know, just on a production level, I feel like there's something really satisfying about closing circles. Like I really, I really love when it's done well and when it's done delicately, I love the feeling of arriving where you started. Yeah, because the story also ends at that same exact wedding. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you have this piece of tape with your with your mom that's that was recorded when you were 18, and it's a phone conversation, and I'm just wondering, like, are you just always... And there's other parts of the, the story, too, that just makes me think, is Sarah just constantly <laughs> rolling tape <laughs> with like on every aspect of his life? Like, how, how did you know to, like... Oh, yeah. Wait, you are? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I ask people and or I let them know at the beginning of the conversation, like, hey, I'm recording this. I mean, this is a good thing about starting early is that, like, I very quickly realized that I'd much rather embarrass myself asking to record than regret, you know, like a day later be like, God damn it. I wish I had recorded that conversation. That would have been beautiful, you know. And so I'm yeah, I'm constantly rolling. Always, always. So you have your gear with you almost all the time? No, I mean, I record my phone calls using um, an app and then I, you know, I'll use my phone. I think iPhones have great, great quality sometimes. I mean, sometimes you have to do a little something to them, but um, but I'll just pull out my phone sometimes and start recording as well because I, you know, I I just don't want to miss it. You know, I don't want to I don't want to look back and be like, damn, I wish I had recorded that. And you want the scene to unfold in real time. And I want the scene to unfold in real time. Exactly. (laughs) It's a nice thing because it opens up like once you've started doing that, then people get comfortable with the fact that you are recording. And so you can sort of pull out your phone again. And this time they know, OK, he's recording, you know, so it, it sets a precedent, too. But I question that all the time. I mean, I question it when I'm recording stuff now, like, you know, why can't I just live this thing instead of recording it? Um, and sometimes I don't record because I'm like, I don't want want my life to be defined by documentation. I want my life to be defined by my living it and and if i happen to be documenting it then that can be a part of it too but yeah i don't want it to be everything yeah going back a little bit to like how having the story and sitting on it uh for years it's funny because i feel like a lot of radio producers or just like people who want to tell stories write stories um make films like usually the first thing that they go to is like a personal thing in their life like the big personal thing that happened to them mm-hmm. so the fact that like this wasn't the first thing that you turned to when you started making radio, it, it, it's it's understandable, but it's also interesting. It felt too big, as you know, as as um, aloof as I am a lot of the time. I was aware of my skill level, and I was aware of what I was capable of, and 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 I just sort of felt like I don't have the skills yet to tell this story in the way that it needs to be told. And I feel like once I started at Latino USA, I was sort of like, okay. I have the skills. I can do this. I could tell the story if I needed to. And also I have, you know, the the financial support of this show. You know, I didn't know where I was going to end up. I thought I might go to El Salvador at some point. Um, so I was like, all right, well, I need someone who's going to help me pay for that plane ticket because I can't do it. I think that was that was the big thing that was holding me back. And I'm kind of glad that it did because I don't think I could have told that story 
in the way that it was told if I had done it when I was 18 or 19. I thought of this question when I learned that you were working on the story while you were also a part-time busboy. And I remember that Terry once asked a version of this question that I thought of, uh, but her version is much better. Of course, I'm just basically going to rip this next question right out of her. Mm. Like when you're doing a part-time job like cleaning dishes, does it affect your sense of yourself, like your identity? Are you able to say, well, I'm a radio maker, but my living is cleaning dishes, so it's fine? Um, Or do you think, oh gosh, I'm going to be cleaning dishes like the rest of my life. I really want to be a radio maker, an artist, and I'm just stuck here cleaning. Because some people, it really gets to them that they have a day job that's like not in line with what they really want to be doing. So at that point when I was a busboy, I was at youth radio. I was was like, you know, I think I was working a little under full time because they didn't want to give me benefits because I was, you know, a child. So I was just doing that that as sort of a side gig to make extra money. And um, and I loved working there. I loved the people that I worked with. And so I never really identified. Um, but I think later on, when I went when I got into college um, and I was sort of studying full time and working, you know, at a kid's clothing store or a cafe or a fine dining restaurant, that's when the frustration started to boil up inside me a little bit because it felt like now I'm not getting to do any of like none of the time is is spent getting to do that one thing that I really like to do. But I think it's I mean, I think it's helpful too. like that frustration. Like I felt like it was like a revving, you know, like I was revving up. Like even when I started at Latino USA, I wasn't producing feature length pieces. I didn't get to the Quevedos was my first feature length piece for Latino USA. And, and for the first six or seven months, I'd been doing sort of these like, you know, these in, two way interviews and these little short segments. And so I felt like I'd been revving up for years to make my own stuff um, and been revving up to sort of tell a story. And so when it finally came, when that moment finally came, it was like, oh, I'm going all the way in. I'm going to prove to you that this is what I need to be doing all the time. And I feel like I did that, which I feel really good about. But it, but it, it was I mean, it was really frustrating. But Frustration is useful because then when you get the shot, when you get the opportunity, you're like, I'm not going to waste this. I'm not going back to putting kids shoes on anymore um, or, you know, cleaning plates for people. I'm I'm going to make this work. Has working on the story basically like healed your relationship with your family and and brought you closer? It's hard to say, right? Like, how do you heal some of that stuff? Right. Like, I think my mom still carries so much hurt from her childhood that I'm like, I don't think a story will ever be able to fix that. But, you know, I, I think with my cousins in particular, I think it is very much. I don't know if it's healing as much as it's just it's nice to know that there's someone else there who's witness to this, you know, and and to be able to talk about that stuff. And they have a bunch of questions about our family history as well. And so it's nice to not be sort of asking yourself that question, but be able to ask each other those questions. And they have a little bit more information than I do. But I wouldn't say it healed us necessarily. I think it played a part in bringing us together, but I I still haven't had a full conversation with my uncle since that piece aired. And I don't think it's because he's mad at me. I think it's because he's sort of flaky and bad at picking up his phone. But I'm sure also part of it is that he's not really quite ready to have that conversation. And it's been a few years now. But I've talked to my cousin several times and and that always feels good. I'm glad I have that relationship. Did you ever like question like, why am I recording the deepest, darkest secrets of my family and mm-hmm. turning them into radio? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you could have gone on this journey and not have it end in this result of of a radio story that ends up on air. Totally. Totally. No, I thought through that a lot. And I thought through the fact that I was like, it was like, man, I'm really putting this relationship, this new relationship at risk. Like, it's like, oh, you found your family and now you're about to completely alienate them by putting their business on the radio. But I felt like I had to be honest about what I experienced. 
And, you know, it's funny, my brother, who makes a very brief appearance in the piece, um, you know, he he was sort of the gut check for me a lot. I mean, he questioned that stuff a lot um, and was sort of like, why are you recording or like, why are you doing this? I think my worst fear is 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 being exploitative. Um, and 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 I know that nobody goes into their work thinking that they're being exploitative, you know, or hopefully people don't consciously do that. We do it when we get comfortable and we, and we think we're doing the right thing. And so I, you know, I still don't know. So another piece that you did that also came out in the same year is called The Return. It revolves around this fact that the Trump administration didn't want to renew this like policy or what have you that's called TPS, Temporary Protected Status, and it's for people who came to the U.S. in the 90s from Central America. And by not renewing TPS, basically, those folks had to figure out, had to either go back to their country of origin or figure out a visa to be able to stay in the U.S. The piece focuses on this one person, Javier, who ends up going back to El Salvador, hence the title of the piece, The Return. We should say that the piece ended up winning gold at the 2019 Third Coast Awards last year. And yeah, like what what was the inception for that story? It started as an interview. Javier is this very celebrated poet and he's he's my age. So, so... Maria was interviewing him for this two-way, just about this book that he had written about his journey as a child from going from El Salvador to the U.S. Basically, it was a book of really beautiful poems about um, what it's like to be a child who is migrating across the border. And I just remember thinking like, wow, this guy has such a beautiful way of talking about his story and telling stories. And um I just felt like this would be a shame to leave this as a two-way interview. I think there's something more here. And I remember at the very end of the interview, he just sort of casually mentioned like, oh, I've got to go back to El Salvador in a couple of weeks, you know, to potentially get this visa. It was that moment I was sitting there and I was like, should I ask him this? Is this asking too much? Is he going to hate me? And I and I just sent him a text and I was like, do you think you would record yourself while you're out there? Would that be OK? And he was like, yeah, totally. So I just wrote out a bullet list, a really, honestly, frankly, kind of um, lackluster bullet list of like, hey, just record this and that. Um, if you can while you're out there. And him and I would check in every once in a while. Um, but it wasn't until he really came back and I started interviewing him about the experience and going through the tape that I was like, oh, wow, there's a there's a story here. Like there's something really beautiful. And so that's sort of the, the way that that piece came about. So it's a non-narrated piece. Your voice isn't in it. Um, and it's a combination of radio diaries, essentially, that Javier records and bits of of narration and also bits from an interview that you had conducted with Javier at one point. So it's all these different types of tape that comes together to produce this piece. But the main aspect of it is Javier's narration. Mm. Um, That's kind of the thread that kind of guides you along. And it sounds very natural and beautiful and of the moment. Um, So yeah, can you talk about how you conceived of Javier's narration? Yeah, I brought Javier into the studio. I remember it was it was like one of the hottest days of that summer. And Latino USA has a very, very now they have multiple. But at that time, they had a very, very tiny recording booth with no air conditioning. And so I remember both of us sweating. We were both sitting in the studio, just like drenched in sweat. And I asked him to just close his eyes and sort of describe the initial days of, you know, leading up to him leaving to go to El Salvador and I wasn't really sure at that moment what it was going to be. But then I, as I was hearing him describe stuff, I was like, there's a way we can we could weave this together. Like there's, you know, he has sort of the presence that I think that I as a listener would would follow. 
Um, but it really, uh, similarly to the Quevedos, I feel like often I'm sort of like building my wings as I fall um, and that like I'm not sort of aware of where the thing is going until until I'm at the end. Um, I don't I don't go in sort of being like, this is going to be a story about this. Originally, it was sort of the, the way that it was constructed was it was just sort of like an amalgamation of all of these different feelings that he was having about coming back and all of these things he was experiencing. Basically, how much everything around had changed and not changed. And I realized like the perfect example of that is with his grandparents who are both so, so similar in some ways, but also so unbearably foreign to him. And once I got him sort of talking about that, I realized like this is where we're going. This is what the story has been around about this whole time. But then before realizing that, what was the story about and what were you running at? Oh, I mean, I, I, I was just in love with the narration really is what, you know, like I I sort of felt like this story could be about nothing. I could listen to Javier talk all day long. You put some like light scoring underneath that and it's it's gold. And so it was sort of, I mean, the piece itself was sort of all over the place. I think it was mostly the biggest through line was sort of like, will he or won't he get his green card, right? Which is still kind of a thread in the story at this point. I love making things where I love making pieces where the story starts as one thing and then by the time that you get to the end you realize that that thing doesn't is actually not as important as you thought it was like so you know there's a tension around whether he will or won't get this green card but ultimately the story is actually about his relationship with his grandparents in the same way that like the Quevedos is you know sort of a, about a story of like you know will I ever learn my family history and eventually is a story actually about like your family history is basically right here in front of you. And it's it's the people that have been there since the beginning, um, which sounds kind of corny now that I'm saying it out loud. But like I do like there's something about sort of pivoting away from the expectation that I find really exciting. And I especially love bureaucracy in a story and like finding ways to sort of make bureaucracy um, this sort of exciting and un- unknown and frustrating element that adds a, a sense of suspense for for people um, because it's often just like a pain in the neck. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're waiting for your green card or if you're trying to get your grandmother's death certificate or in the story that I'm working on now that's supposed to air on the daily at some point soon, if you're trying to get your euthanasia papers. And as a scene builder, you know, and someone who, who prefers scenes over just uh, narration as a main vehicle of relaying information, how did that aspect of you focus itself on this piece? Like, how did you get scenes out of Javier, you know, who who's both like the, the narrator, the storyteller, the reporter in some way, because he's talking about his reporting on his life and he's recording the audio diaries. I mean, he's a natural storyteller just as a result of being a poet, which was very lucky for me. And similarly, I mean, it feels like sort of a cheat in some ways because my mom is also a poet and I think that she's a really great storyteller. And so I, I felt in some ways with those two pieces initially, I was like, man, I really cheated. And then nobody knows the secret code is just interview poets. But, you know, he, <laughs> you know, he, he, he just naturally sort of speaks in scenes, um, which was really helpful, especially for a piece like that, where there is a lot of sort of reflecting on things that there aren't really any recordings for. Um, so like, you know, talking about, his journey, his his getting ready to leave the house when he was um, a kid, when he was nine years old. And he told that story completely in scenes and then thankfully was quite open with me and let me digitize some of his VHS um, tapes, which really helped sort of anchor the piece. And then I just had to build around. I had to really build the scenes around the ways that he was talking. And I wanted to I wanted them to feel as if we were 
in those scenes um, and and not just from a sort of sound design aspect, but I wanted there to be movement. I want it to feel like a scene in the sense that like things are happening and, and the world around you is changing as you're moving through it. And thankfully, he's just such a, a great storyteller that I, I often just needed little light touches of scoring or light touches of sound design to to get there. So what were the reasons for the multiple interviews? It was an excavation process with Javier where we would just have these long, long, long conversations in the studio. And and I might come out the other end and feel like, okay, well, I'm not using like 30 or 40 minutes of that because I don't need any of that. Um, But he might have said one thing that sort of felt like, ooh, next time he comes in, I'm going to ask him to talk more about that. Um, And so it was a back and forth. I tried to provide agency for him in that process too in that like I you know if he felt something was important I let him talk about it as long as he needed to and it may not end up in the piece but then at least he felt like he was heard which I thought was important you know especially in a story in telling a personal story it's like you should feel free to talk about everything it's not all going to end up in the piece but you should feel at least like the person that's taken interest in in the things that you're interested in for me it's like if you want to get someone to sound sort of like themselves, then you have to sort of wear down the part of them that is trying to perform for you. And I think that often the first five interviews or four interviews are performance. Like the person has this narrative in their head that they're ready to tell. Um, and and I want to move past that. So in order to do that, I need to become their friend and I need to like really hang out with them a lot, a lot. Um, and so the the interview, it's funny because in some ways it's like the first five interviews are really just pre-interview for me. Um, like figuring out what the story is. They don't, I don't tell them that, of course, because they would be like, well, fuck this. I don't want to stay in this studio. I don't want to come back here 15 times. Um, but I think if you show, it's a, it's, it's almost sort of like a sign of respect, right? Like I will sit here and listen to you talk for as long as you want to talk. And eventually we'll get around to making the thing that we need to make. But like, I'm going to just let you talk and, and talk and talk and talk. Um, and then I'll get around to the questions that I want to ask you. And that's how you get this sort of comfortable sounding narration. Because by the time that, you know, you've rolled around to the sixth interview and you're re-asking a question from that first interview, you're getting a completely different kind of answer because that person isn't like, oh, how is this going to sound? You know, they're just like, well, I don't know what's going to end up in this piece. So I'm just going to talk to this person. And how long are these like pre-interviews essentially? Like an hour plus? Oh, yeah. Like an hour, maybe a little bit more than an hour sometimes. Um, you know, I'll judge it based off of their energy levels, basically. But but yeah, usually the first five are like an hour long. <laughs> And I also, you know, and I spend try to spend time either sort of like around the interview or outside of the interview with the person that I'm talking to, right? So like talking with them on the phone or going out for a drink with them because then spending time with me feels less like a professional chore and more just like, oh, this is just a part of my rhythm now is talking to Sarah, sharing some part of the story with Sarah once a week. It's sort of like going to therapy or exercising. It's like once you've done it, you know, several times when I ask you for the sixth time, it sort of feels like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's just what I'm doing with Sarah right now Um, and feels less sort of like, oh, man, another interview. But it's a, you know, it's a mental switch. And I don't know if it works all the time, but it it, it worked with Javier. Um, And I think because we just had had a lot in common and a lot to talk about outside of just his experience as well. One thing that I'm not hearing you say when you're talking about the story is that like, you know, Trump has this narrative about people who come to the U.S. from Central America. And I wanted to, like, push back against this narrative. And one way that I thought of doing that is to, like, have you spend, you know, 37 minutes with someone who was born in El Salvador, but 
has been an American since he was a kid. And you know what I mean? Like that, those words mm. are just like not coming out yeah. of your mouth, which is fine. But I just feel like it's such a different way of how a show like This American Life might tackle the story. But I would feel like This American Life would be like, okay, here's this policy. We want to uncover it in a nuanced way where there's human emotion at the heart of it and and like real people and and spending time with that person you know and how can we get at it and here's a way because and honestly that's how initially how i thought the how the pitch came about where like tps was being revoked and then latino usa producers were like okay how can we as a show address address this issue but i'm not i'm not hearing that frankly i'm really averse to like contextualization in that way like i i reckon i'm like and and i think any of my editors would probably vouch for this as well like i'm averse to the part of storytelling that feels the need to do exposition about why you should care because i feel like if i've done a good job then you already care you know like i don't feel like i need to we you know and we mention it you know in the intro is like tps was you know not renewed for salvadorans and we're telling the story of javier but to me that just sort of feels like housework that you need to do in order to you know to be a radio show and to be a news show um, but the thing that I'm interested in doing has nothing to do with like, it's like, I just don't, I also don't want to make work that is like in response to the Trump administration or in response to government policy. I just want to make stuff about people because I think it also, that just changes the approach to the whole interview, right? Like if I was like, sort of like, can you talk about, you know, the ins and outs of TPS for me, Javier is like, that's not, you know, he doesn't want to talk about that. He wants to share what this thing felt like for him. And then did you worry about, now I feel like I probably shouldn't be asking this question after what you just said, but do you, did you worry about like how to portray El Salvador? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Because there's a moment in the piece um, for people who haven't heard it, or it's been a while since they heard it. There's a moment in the piece that's like more towards the halfway point or, or, or more where Javier is talking about like how he doesn't feel unsafe and how he feels like he can't go outside because he he might like encounter gangs or people won't recognize him and think that he's like part of a different gang or something. So he just felt like he was just spending a lot of his days locked up inside, um, mostly for safety reasons. So that part comes up. Yeah, no, I thought about that a lot. I thought about that a lot because I, I feel like what I didn't want to do, what I was afraid of doing was making a piece that makes El Salvador look like it's like some gang ridden, you know, um, war zone that like, you know, you know, and, and, and but I also didn't want to ignore the realities of the fact that like, yes, gangs do exist and people do spend a lot of times in their homes um, as a result. Not all of them, you know, like I've been I've been out there, but I also come with a different context, right, as as someone who's um, appears at least when I'm there as as being not from there. And so I was really worried. I was really worried about that. And, you know, I ended up cutting a lot of things and I. For Javier especially, I think there was a lot of angst around um, that feeling of not feeling safe. And I wanted to acknowledge that those feelings are real, too, and that he's allowed to feel those. Like, you know, like I don't want to I don't want to invalidate that feeling because I think it's real. But at the same time, I don't want to make a piece that sort of makes it seem like, you know, like Javier was you know, going to this dangerous place, which I think is like a lot of these stories about people returning. Right. Are stories about like, oh, well so-and-so lived in the U.S. and now they live in Mexico and they fear for their life or now they live in El Salvador and they fear for their life because it's it's like, yes, that that's probably that is probably a part of the experience, but there's so much more to it than that. Um, and that's why I sort of ended up going this route of looking at his family because I just felt like this is the part that nobody talks about. Nobody talks about what it's like to come back and, and have to, to deal with the guilt of having left in the first place. 
you know, I, at the time there were all of, you know, a bunch of stories about people um, being deported and, and you know, being sent sent back to their countries of origin. I didn't want to make another one of those stories. I wanted to make something about someone who is an immigrant, about someone who's from El Salvador, but that ends, you know, that takes you to an unexpected place in their mind and their in their in their life. If you want to be scared, there's lots of stuff out there that can scare you, but I'm not I'm not interested in making stuff that scares people. I want people to feel surprised and 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 connected. But yeah, that was an anxiety for sure throughout the process. So you did this piece called The Spera, which translates to wait, and it's done in Spanish and it's basically just a conversation that you're having with your lover like in bed it's a very intimate conversation you're having with a lover and it just like unravels it's as if as the piece feels as if you'd stumbled on like an overheard conversation between lovers that's very intimate and and private and it's kind of like in hushed tones and it's a really beautiful piece and uh it's translated on Radio Atlas. And there's so much to talk about it, like the structure of the piece and how it unravels and how it unfolds. But I think for the sake of time, I'm only going to ask you one question. And this is a question that you might not want to answer, which is fine. But like, who's the guy? <laughs> the guy? Well, so uh, I won't give away any identity because I want to I want to protect him, obviously. But um, he was yeah, he was he was an ex-lover and um, or soon to be ex-lover in the moment that that was being recorded and in the moment I didn't I didn't think to myself like oh this is going to make, make for a great documentary someday I just pulled out the recorder you know I just pulled out the recorder while we were laying there and and I feel like often the way I justified in my own head is just like I just want a document of this moment you know like I just want to be able to look back on this thing and remember it completely because one day I may not be able to remember things I mean I still don't you know there are things that are from my childhood or even my teens that I'm like, I'm not sure I'm entirely remembering that correctly. And so having a recording and a document um, is really, really important for me. And and especially as someone who grew up without a family history, right? Like, I feel like I have to collect these stories for myself um, of who I was. And, and, and he, you know, he was... He was someone who I cared a lot about. And he was also I met him sort of at this moment where I was sort of trying to figure out, you know, like early 20s, sort of like, will I ever fall in love? Will I ever meet someone who treats me, you know, treats me right? Will I ever meet someone who um, cares about me and 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 cares for me and who doesn't have some weird like there was always, you know, I had all these different lovers and there was always like something right. Like it was like, oh, they are leaving the country in three months or like, oh, they're they're still not over their ex, whatever it is. And um, and that had been that relationship was the first, you know, when I was first meeting him, I was like, this is perfect. He's so sweet. He thinks I'm so great. And then um, and then he told me the news about him being married and uh, and we decided to break it off and I remember it was the, it was a snow day it was a really you know it was snowing super hard and I got school off and so he texted me and was just like can I see you one last time before before we end things and I was like oh I don't know if that's a good idea but okay fine and so he came over and we just laid there for like four hours and and you know that conversation is 13 minutes long the the cut of it but the, the what I recorded was probably about three and a half hours of conversation of us just sort of processing all of this different stuff. It was sort of like we were catching up on the time that we wouldn't have. Like I was asking him all these questions about his upbringing and how he ended up in the situation that he was in and, and all of that stuff. The stuff that you do with a lover as you get to know them over the years. And, and we tried to do it all in, in a few hours because we knew we weren't going to be in contact again after. So 
on your on your computer monitor at Latina USA, you kind of kept all these like post it notes mm-hmm. on your on your monitor. Like, what did they say? Oh, so I put like dates and and things to remember, all that stuff, and then I had one quote, and let me find it actually. Break a vase and the love that reassembles the fragments is stronger than that love which took its symmetry for granted when it was whole. I had that quote on my desktop and it was like sitting right there in front of me every time I would work on stuff. And it, it started because I, I I put it up. I discovered that quote while I was working on the Quevedos and it sort of felt like it felt apt, you know, like it was like, oh, I have this broken family and the love that I'm putting into this work to try to bring us together again is 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 greater than the love that broke it. But then that's like it just feels like a good general philosophy. And I changed the quote. Like so when I moved to the to the Times, I changed my quote. I have a little had a little post-it note up on my desktop there. And that one was um Eduardo Galeano. And it said, um, Utopia is always on the horizon. You take ten steps and it moves farther ahead. So what what use is is utopia? And it says, for walking, utopia is for walking. And I just felt like that at this point in my career was like, you know, I'd before I was sort of trying to discover like what is the thing that I'm getting at and and now it's sort of about the the process or more about sort of like I don't know I mean I guess I don't it, it I feel like it's hard it's hard for me to put into words but it, I guess it's just this feeling that like there is no utopia there's no perfect place which is why I keep moving jobs there's no perfect place you know and and um, but the point is to always try to do the best and try to make a to make a better world wherever you go and to to make work that is healing wherever you go. Right. And like nothing is going to be perfect all the time. But as long as you're still walking and, and, and making that journey, then like then it's worth it, you know, because you may never arrive there, but you're at least a little bit closer. And, I, you know, I, I've, I'm a, obviously a very sentimental person. And, and um, but I just like I'm. I, you know, sometimes you need to be reminded of that stuff because when you're sitting in front of a Pro Tools session, it feels like the most impersonal thing in the world. And so to remind yourself of of what it all means and, and why you do it is, I think, is important years, years and years down the line. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on tape. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of Tape. Thank you once again to our guest, Sayer Cavedo, for coming on the show. I'm Muj Sadie, and this episode was edited by Angela Vang. And I just want to give a special thank you to Antonia Serejido and Sofia Padizakar. You can follow us at Tape Radio. We'll be back soon with another episode of Tape. Bye. Don't you hold me back, cause I know, I know.